Welcome to Leaders and Learners. My name is Tanya McKenzie, and you can find me at the intersection of public relations and leadership. Join us as we talk to organizational leaders, elected officials, experts, authors, artists, and personalities sharing their stories, talking about how they got to where they are and how they continue to learn and lead the way. So without further ado, let's get into it. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Leaders and Learners, where we all know that the best leaders are lifetime learners. And today, I think we might learn a little something from the author that I have uh, joining us. It is historical fiction, but elements of truth. Um, Clearly, there's an opinion uh, that he'll share with you um, about the Black Panthers, uh, of all things. Now, uh, before you Um, assume what this is about, let me make it clear that you would not expect this person to be speaking on the Black Panthers, but we can all learn something uh, from what he has to share. And I got some questions. Y'all know I got questions. And if you have questions, make sure you tap in, uh, make sure you comment. Uh, I'll have him answer questions uh, live. So anything that you want to ask, you already know it's not off Uh, off limits. So let's go ahead and get started. His name is Dr. Um, Dr. Alvin Kim and we, Alvin Pam, I'm sorry. And we are going to talk about this book that he wrote, but why it was so difficult for him to get it published. Uh, Without further ado, let's go ahead and bring him in. Dr. Pam, how are you today? Thank you. I'm fine today. Thank you. Awesome. Now, listen, let's get into the book. First, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and why you even decided to write this book, because you're an author of, you're a three-time author, and I would love to know why this book. So take us from the beginning. Who is Dr. Pam? Well, I'm a psychologist in practice in New York. Um, I wrote this book uh, because uh, I was one of the vo- volunteers who went to Mississippi in 1964 to work on a voter registration project over the summer. Um, <clears throat> Martin Luther King called for volunteers to come down and help register voters um, in the hardest state of all um, to get voters registered. Um, we came down there. Uh, for the summer, it was understood we would be going back to our schools in September and assisting uh, the local people who were already working on that project. Um, <clears throat> we're white, um, but not all. Um, and um, the project started off with a tragedy. Three workers were killed right off the bat by the Klan. Um, and, um, that brought in, um, such an out, we were all Northerners. If that had happened to three Southerners and three Black Southerners, I don't suppose much would have happened beyond what had always happened down there. But we were Northerners and mostly white and two of the people killed were whites. Um, and that brought such an outcry, uh, in the North from the parents. Uh, from politicians, uh, so that uh, the FBI was called in uh, to find these killers. They were found eventually. 
um, um, and to protect the remaining workers whom it was estimated by Walter Cronkite that 50% of us would be killed before the summer was over. But no more of us were killed once the FBI was there. But there were some close escapes, including one of my own. Um, so we were already pro-civil pro rights, but that experience in Mississippi radicalized us a lot more. Um, at the end of the summer, we hadn't registered hardly any voters. The resistance was so intense. Um, but there was a, a lot of national attention drawn to what was happening. And then the next year, the Selma, is, the Selma incident at the bridge um, turned the corner and uh, uh, legislation was passed uh, giving Blacks the vote in the South. And then at that point, uh, we, um, we went back to college. Um, and part of the novel reflects uh, my experiences in Mississippi. Um, <clears throat> we went back to college. I went to Buffalo where I was a graduate student. And I met a, a young woman, an African-American young woman in those days, would have been called Negro. Um, who had also been in Mississippi, but in a different uh, project site than I was. So we, we never met down there. But we did meet in Buffalo, and uh, we fell in love. We got married. We have two children, both lawyers uh, now. Um, and I had no more personal experience with the Black Panthers, but... Um, but they invaded my marriage. <laughs> and, so, and so we had discussions constantly about the white, the, the white liberals' point of view, which was mine, and her point of view, which was more radical and more sympathetic um, to the Panthers. Um, and uh, it contributed somewhat, not totally, to our eventual divorce 10 years later. Mm -hmm. And all that's reflected in the novel, the various discussions at the table about what was right, what was wrong, what was the best way to go, what, what did the Panthers offer, what were, their, what were the problems that they posed. Um, <clears throat> so in that respect, the novel is, a fair amount is autobiographical, but it's not, not that I had personal and direct contact with with the Panthers themselves, although my wife did at the time. Um, um, so, um, so that brings me to the novel itself. It's a historical novel. All the events depicted in it are true. Anybody who's my age who reads the novel tells me, oh, I remember that, oh, I remember that, oh, I remember that. There's also a a historical epilogue at the back, which gives uh, sources uh, from autobiographies, from histories uh, of the period, uh, <clears throat> um, and uh, court cases and so forth, so that uh, the back up that the novel did not make events, although they are almost in, 
it's, it's impossible almost to believe that these things happened the way that they did. Um, so now why, why did I have to self-publish this book? Well, let me ask you, you first. Me go let, me take, let me take you back really quick. You, as a white man, decided to marry this black woman. How did your family feel about that? Walk us through that. Oh, boy. Well, um, my mother basically renounced me, refused to come to the way, um, threatened suicide if my father went, which he didn't go. Uh, she didn't see me or the children or my wife for 10 years. And I relented slightly. And my daughter to visit her in Florida, where they had moved. Um, but I had no contact with her for 10 years. However, my siblings came. I have four, three siblings, um, and they all came to the wedding. And, um, you know, and we gathering. But my parents didn't come at all, ever. So it did not go well. Her parents were a little skeptical, um, but um, had no problems with it. Um, but my mother did meet with her mother and try to dissuade her from supporting the marriage based on the fact that I was such a screw up mm. <laughs> and, and they should stay away from me. <laughs> but that didn't work. <laughs> so your kids never had a relationship with their grandparents on your side? Uh, on my side? Yes, they did after 10 years, but my son hardly at all. And is very race conscious. Uh, I'm sure to a great extent based on that experience. Uh, my daughter had a little bit, just a little bit with my mother. Uh, but she died soon after that. Um, and uh, that was the end of the story there. Uh, but my father was, uh, once she died, my father completely uh, made every overture to my wife and then ex-wife and put her in his will and had called her up every once in a while and basically said he was ashamed of himself. Um, but he, he couldn't, he couldn't um, make his wife even more depressed than she already was uh, for 10 years. And she, you know, she was aggravated for 10 years. So that was very hard on our side. So in essence, he, he showed you that um, happy wife, happy life. Well, to an extent, <laughs> at least, right? Yeah, to some extent. <laughs> Slightly. Now, now, your kids, now, what have you watched them go through? They're adults now. But what have you watched them go through that resonates with what you saw back then? Well, my daughter's pretty comfortable with uh, having a, a mixed race identity. Uh, um, she's married, has three children of her own. Race is really not a great issue for her. She mingles freely um, with, with that, everybody. Um, but my son is really very aggravated by racial issues and uh, uh, is extremely sensitive. She tends to see prejudice every place where you could possibly um, interpret it. 
Um, at times, it's even accused me of it. Um, but uh, I mean, he, he was seared by it. And, uh, uh, and of course, by later experiences, he's darker skinned than his sister. So he appears mixed race, more so than she does. Mm. Uh, but uh, um, I think he was more harmed by, by what happened. Well, I don't know if I've answered your question. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to get a little bit more into, I guess, the struggles that African-Americans suffered back then when you were able to witness it firsthand. Um, what have you personally yes. seen your son struggle with in comparison to maybe something that you saw back then? Struggled with um, having no relationship to his grandmother, but paternal grandmother. His maternal grandparents died fairly, fairly young. Um, uh, we moved into we we bought a house. My wife and I bought a house, and we built an in-law suite into the house for my um, in my parents-in-law. Uh, it was wonderful, uh, and. Um, my my father-in-law was more a father to me in many ways than my own father was certainly in those days because um, I hardly I didn't see my father um, <clears throat> or communicate with him really he he just kept his distance uh, to support my mother um, <clears throat> so so my son uh, he he was raised in a black family. Um, we encountered prejudice the day we moved in, uh, because uh, when we moved into this house, newly built for us, um, no, newly built as part of a, a development, and we moved in, and there were, you know, splash painted on the uh, fresh walls was a nigger go home, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And the first day in the house was covering that up with wallpaper. I mean, so. And of course, he's had some experiences of his own uh, since um, he, he feels he was stopped by the police uh, for a minor traffic infraction. And, uh, you know, it's stuff like he, he took it very hard. I felt he was singled out. He may have been, but he may not have been. Uh, but he always tends to the other way. Uh, so he's very sensitive to that. And he's very preoccupied with that. Uh, mm. <clears throat> my daughter hardly at all. You know, she's, you know, she's fairly comfortable with the issues of race. You know, and do she's they, a liberal. Do, so. do, do your kids get along with each other? No, they do not. Mm. That's a very unfortunate. <laughs> I still try to fix it. <laughs> It is. Talk to me about the book That's and, why you were compelled, and why you were compelled to write this book. Yes, I ran into a problem that was called cultural appropriation. I had never heard of it before. The book was very well reviewed by agents. Um, 
autobiography wasn't. Um, and, uh, and one editor liked it so much, he uh, brought it to the publisher for publication. Um, but it was always turned down. In the end, it was always turned down because the publishing industry does not want to get into problems with cultural appropriation in which uh, white authors have black protagonists and speak for the black protagonists, um, <clears throat> which they considered uh, is not authentic, cannot be authentic. And, uh, <clears throat> and also is uh, a lot of times you get accused of trying to make money off, off actually, <laughs> uh, of course, I've made no money. I've lost, <laughs> I spent money to self-publish. Um, and um, so um, the book was, and the only way I could get it into print um, was self-publishing, but I did not to turn the book away uh, because it has a white author. So I used the name Pam in the title, and it was a picture of a black female panther on the front cover. So giving, suggesting that I am black female. Um, I wanted the book to get a fair hearing on its merits without race being an issue. Um, but at the end of the book, I do have an author's note in which I disclose who I am and why I did this. Um, and I've come on podcasts um, uh, and of course acknowledge being white. I'm not trying to fool anybody in the end. I only want to get a fair hearing and I have to get around cultural appropriation, uh, which has uh, for me been a form of censorship. Um, and the book is, in my view is to some extent autobiographical and also historical. You know, it's, 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 it's quite a history of the Black Panthers. At the end of the book, I have a historical epilogue uh, which I give references from autobiographies of Panthers, uh, historical uh, um, uh, uh, accounts of the of the period uh, by historians um, and um, and the court records, so to demonstrate that uh, I didn't make this stuff up. Really so happened. why would you call it? That's how so it happened. It, I'm sorry. Why would you call it historical fiction? Then, if it's nonfiction, like walk me through that because this isn't actually the first time I. Oh, it's fiction. It is fiction, Tanya. Um, okay. The um, protagonist is a black female journalist named Neff, for short for Nefertiti, okay. um, who goes to Mississippi gotcha. <laughs> and describes her experience there, which is gotcha. a carbon copy of mine. Um, <clears throat> and uh, is uh, hired by a New York newspaper, something like the uh, Amsterdam News, but not fictionalized, and is sent out to cover the Panthers in Oakland, California. Uh, they were formed in 1967. He comes up to interview them because they made quite a splash of uh, putting on spectacles that drew instant media attention and publicity. Um, it's the leader of the Panthers, Huey P. Newton, 
and they begin a love affair, uh, although that is not. Uh, <clears throat> and um, so that's all fiction. And of course, she's reporting what the Panthers are doing, and a lot of it is scoops because uh, Newton is telling her things that nobody else in the media knows about except her mm. having access to him um, and also having a first-hand view of what's going on. And um, so uh, so all that is, that part is all fictional. So it's part of a novel and she gets involved with the Panthers and uh, um, actually joins the Panthers herself, even though that's something of a um, violation of journalistic ethics. But she, that's, that was her reality. Her uh, complicit in that. He also f uh, feels that uh, that's the spirit of the times. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, the solidarity was required. This is the moment of black power. And uh, so, um, <clears throat> so they, they move along um, <clears throat> uh, through event after event. And she's enchanted, everybody enchanted by black power, uh, uh, by the Black Panthers, uh, because uh, it was such a remarkable organization. Huey P. Newton recruited only ex-convicts as his militia, as his armed militia. Um, so they were a scary looking bunch. They kind of a uniform, black leather jackets, black boots, black berets, and they carried rifles when it was, as long as it was legal to carry weapons openly in California, which it was for six months. Um, but when Panthers began carrying weapons openly in public, the legislature changed its mind real quick and banned open carry of weapons in public. And the National Rifle Association, for the only time in its history, did not complain about a rollback of gun rights. The only mm -hmm. time is when Black Panthers carried weapons openly. Uh, so, I mean, it's an extraordinary story, all of this. And, uh, and they, they policed the police, basically, when the police rolled around. When the police they got out of the car institutional rights of the, whoever they were arresting to the police. They actually carried um, the Constitution in their hands, one hand on the Constitution, the other hand on a rifle. <laughs> so it, it was What do amazing. you think that, really quick, what do you think that you were able to display? You were a white man raised by parents that obviously didn't support integration and you wound up being a part of history uh, and supporting African-Americans, having your own. Yes. What do you think yes. that that in itself can teach this younger generation and help, let's say, bridge some of these gaps, these uh, cultural gaps in our country right now? Well, the Panthers have been resuscitated recently uh, not only by a recent movie about them, uh, but also by the Black Lives Matter movement in which some people spouted uh, 
mottos of the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers always refer to the police as pigs. And so they're down with the pigs, uh, you know, that's them. off with the pig. That was their slogan, off with the pigs, which means kill them. And that's also uh, in the movie. And um, uh, the movie, by the way, Panther chapters uh, sprouted all over the country in imitation of Oakland under the leadership of Oakland. And um, the movie takes place in Chicago, led by Fred Hampton, who was assassinated as the movie shows by the FBI um, <clears throat> uh, to stop the Panthers, to slow them down because uh, they were an outwardly, an avowedly um, revolutionary party. They swore that if black people in the North did not get their rights, it was a Northern movement, not so much a Southern one. Southern one was about voting rights and under Martin Luther King's influence about nonviolent approach. But the Northern movement was activist and, and violent oftentimes with you know, protests in the streets and riots and um, <clears throat> cities burning and all that kind of thing. Um, and uh, so the Panthers uh, uh, symbolized that. Nobody symbolized that more than the Panthers. Um, what they accomplished is what is the difference between the Black Panthers then and the Black Power movement, not the Black Power movement, the Black Lives Matter movement now because what they accomplished was in order to counter their position, which was what else can we do? You know, armed rebellion is our only recourse if you won't change the way education goes, housing goes, jobs go, all the discrimination in the North that oppresses us and keeps us penned into ghettos. Um, um, what else can we do except fight back? And so we have to be a revolutionary party. And um, the response of the, the government, if, when, they, when that really sank in, that where they were really brewing a, a civil war in the United States, um, <clears throat> um, was um, to uh, start integrating the police force, to integrate judges, to integrate prosecutors, um, so that by the time Black Lives Matter came around, um, every major city of the United States, I, I, almost every major city of the United States, had majority, minority police forces. Um, in New York City, where I am, the vast majority of police officers are African-American or Latino-American or Asian-American. There are some white officers, and some of those white officers are racist and do the kind of thing that Black Lives Matter was protesting, and they have to be dealt with. And, you know, there are suggestions about how best to do that. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, the situation is nowhere near as dire as what the Black Panthers faced, and which they changed by threatening revolution. Now, on the issue of revolution, they were a split party. Huey P. The one faction was led by Eldridge Cleaver, uh, an ex-con, uh, noted author. <laughs> um, Soul on Ice was a bestseller <laughs> for many years. 
um, on the New York Times list. He ran for president of the United States in 1964. No, 1968. Excuse me. Um, now, he started immediately. And we seem to be going off. Oh, here we are. Um, so that uh, they would immediately start ambushing, ambushing police cars, attacking police stations, but also attacking government centers of power, as well as corporate uh, centers um, to bring the revolution onto white America. And um, in fact, he did, he did start to do that. And after the ambush of a police car in Oakland, uh, he, he was wounded and he had to escape to Cuba and from there to Algeria, where Panthers who believed in revolution now went to join him by hijacking planes. And the New York chapter and the Los Angeles chapter of the Panthers were loyal to him, not to Huey P. Newton. Uh, Huey P. Newton had a different approach. His sense was, if we are to wage revolution and not just get wiped out, because that's suicide, um, <clears throat> we need to recruit the entire black community as supporters. And so he said, we have to first begin with community programs uh, which he then set up like the breakfast for school children so they could learn in school without being distracted by being hungry. He set up free legal clinics on the weekends, staffed by volunteer lawyers um, to help people with their legal problems, volunteer medical clinics on the weekends, staffed by volunteer doctors and nurses of all races um, to help people with their medical problems and particularly with sickle cell anemia, testing for that. Uh, <clears throat> he uh, set up a, a, private, a, private, a private school, uh, free tuition, because the educational system in Oakland was a disaster, as, as it was then and maybe still is. Uh, certainly we have that problem in New York. Um, um, so... His idea was revolution would come after these programs were established. Uh, Middle-class blacks were brought on in support of the, what the, of the revolution if it came to that. And unless the white community changed its ways and became more, granted Negroes more access to opportunity and equality, uh, and then they would start the revolution. But the black community would be behind them. And so they would have a a great deal more, uh, more power, more more impact. I guess would be the right word, more uh, and etc. So that was his position, and then the two of them ended up warring with each other, and egged on by the FBI, of course, who planted letters accusing each other of plotting to kill one another, or sending in infiltrators to get them to agree to plots to blow up department stores, which they, which weren't going to happen, wasn't going to happen, but it got them trials uh, and put people on trial for that um, based on uh, egging them on. 
as if they were going to do this. Dr. Pam, let me stop you right there. I wanted to ask you, do you think that the media and even the government sometimes now uh, try to play cultures against one another to keep discourse going on? Like, do you ever consider that? Is the media sometimes divisive? Yes. The, the, the radical right is certainly divisive. Fox News is certainly divisive. Um, um, they pretend not to be, but they are. Uh, the left wing sometimes, uh, I don't know if they fall into that. They, they're less likely to do that. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, they, I mean, the Democratic Party leans so heavily on the support of black voters, particularly women voters. And uh, so there's, they're, they're pretty careful about not doing that. Uh, but the Republican Party for sure is divisive that way. Um, well, well, it sounds like you have a lot uh, to teach us continuously. Um, I'm hoping that people will go out and get the book um, and make sure that they, you know, stay in contact with you. How do you uh, want people to continue to support you and this book? Where can they get it? And how can they continue to support you? Well, I don't have a website. I'm, I'm not computer savvy. And my generation of people tend to stay away from computers. I love the telephone. I love the mail, etc. cetera. Um, to buy the book, you'd have to go onto the bookstore page of um, Amazon or Barnes and Nobles. They would have it available. Um, uh, and uh, people can write uh, letters to Archway Publishers, which is the publisher, uh, self-paying publisher of the book, etc., and uh, forward it to me, and we can go from there. Also, these podcasts are a way for me to talk to people, and I'd be glad to answer any questions. Um, I, I do know the history pretty well. Actually, before I was a psychologist, I was a history major <laughs> in college, <laughs> and graduate school. I have a master's in history as well as a PhD in psychology. <laughs> well, I definitely want to thank you for spending the time with us today on Leaders and Learners and want to keep in touch, uh, stay connected and support you um, through this literary journey. So thank you so much and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. I enjoyed this interview. Thank you so much. Same to you. All right, guys. So listen, Get the book. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot that you can learn uh, if you are interested in history and the things that happened back then from a different perspective. As a matter of fact, I would be interested to know how many people have read or listened to someone that wasn't Black talk about uh, the Black Panthers, what their perception was, what their perspective um, was with what they saw. Obviously, uh, he has a, a love for um, his children, who also have dealt with discrimination, uh, color issues growing up, and he's divorced. So there's a lot to learn from people that have gone through trials and tribulations and continue to push forward. Uh, there's sounds like there's hidden gems in the book. So I always suggest get it, read it, and let's talk about it. 
anytime you want to tap in about something you've read, especially if you learned about it here, please follow and support uh, Sand and Shores Leaders and Learners podcast, and we will see you soon. All right. Thanks for tapping in, and we will uh, we'll talk to you soon with another awesome guest for Leaders and Learners. Subscribe, share with a friend, make sure uh, you guys stay connected. All right.